Morning. How are we all doing? It's 10 o'clock. You slept in a little bit. So you, how you doing? All right. I guess 10's early. Um, hey, today we're continuing our series that we've been in for this several weeks, uh, in several months actually, in the book of Hebrews. And um, today we're in chapter 11. Uh, if we just turn there really quickly, or you, we just read this. What is, what is chapter 11 about? Faith, right? Uh, before we jump into faith and looking at what faith is, which by itself is just a really big question, I want to take us back to just a few verses before chapter 11, to chapter 10, verse 35. Verse 35 reads, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Um, One of the the helpful ways I've found is, is viewing Hebrews is as if a pastor is writing to a community, someone who cares for them, shepherding them, trying to explain the deep things of God and then exhort them to live in response to this. And you can almost imagine that he's saying, hey, listen, the coming one will come. That's Jesus. He will come. But you and I live in this in-between time, this sort of limbo state between what Jesus did on the cross and after he rose to when Jesus will return. That's, that's the reality of which we all live in. So he's saying, hey, we live in the in-between time. How are we supposed to live? He says the righteous will live by faith. The character attribute, the quality which we as Christians are meant to cultivate is faith. People of faith. We live and breathe and work by people of faith. Um, as we, as we get into that, it's important to know that there's sort of these two questions that are probably on the forefront of someone's mind as they're listening to this, is what is faith? If I'm supposed to live by faith, what is faith? And then what does a life of faith look like? And Hebrews is kind of cool. It answers that question. The first, the first verse is, here's what faith is. And then the rest of Hebrews 11 is different people who demonstrated living a faithful life. Um, let's, let's jump into uh, to verse 1. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Now, as I've been studying and preparing for this, I found myself like scratching my head as I've read this because I read it over probably hundreds of times. I'm just like, I'm trying to think, what, what does this mean? And part of the reason why this is a struggle for me is because I think faith is a word that we use a lot in Christian circles. And not that that's a bad thing, but it, it's so, it almost like loses a little bit of its meaning. Like I, I throw faith out there often. And so in some sense, I, I've kind of lost exactly what faith is. And in my, in my study and look at this, I'm, I'm kind of rediscovering what faith is. But faith also, not, not just as a word we use a lot, it also is really complex. It has multiple layers, kind of like onions and ogres to it that just make it... Uh, like, interesting. And so as you dive more into it, you, you discover more complexities, you discover more things about it that, that just play into how we then live in faith. Um, but one of the most interesting things is I think you and I, when we typically think of faith, it's something that happens up here. 
And I mean, at least that's, that, that's my experience. Maybe, maybe that's not yours, but faith is something that typically happens up here. It almost becomes synonymous with belief. And so like I believe something in my mind, I have faith of something in my mind, and that becomes somewhat problematic because if we just rest on that alone, faith is a, a mental sort of state that I acknowledge something, I believe something, I muster up or I whip myself into a state in which I can believe something, then that leaves us with sort of a, a not complete picture of what faith is. And we know that that's not exactly what faith is because is chapter 11 primarily about what people think and know? No, <laughs> yeah, I should say no. It's about what they do. There is a really tight connection between what people know, what they recognize and believe, and then what they do in response. So it can't just be what we know and affirm and believe and say kind of like I can mental state agree with this. Um, One of the ways it's been helpful for me to look at this is to sort of um, look at different translations, different uh, versions of scripture that uh, translate this slightly differently. And one of the ways it's been pretty helpful is the King James Version, which... um, goes a little bit like this. It says, faith, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. It's the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Now, first off, it's not a bad thing that one version, the King James Version, would, would be a little bit different than the ESV. Um, the, the problem, or at least the challenge with translating, is that there, in Greek, there isn't a one-to-one. It doesn't work one-to-one. Like, this Greek word doesn't always just mean this one English word. And with English words changing their meaning and over time, like, sometimes a Greek word could mean a variety of words. And so I think the words here used originally in the Greek do mean assurance and conviction and confidence, but they also mean evidence and substance. And there's a theologian, Dallas Willard, he actually prefers this because it pulls us away from the tendency to imagine that faith is something that's some sort of psychological state that is subjective. And that's important because if it's like assurance, assurance is is sort of like an emotion, like I can feel assured, I can rest assured. And conviction or confidence, I can feel confidence, I can feel conviction, but I cannot trust my emotions. I can't. Like, I, I can get mad over dishes, and I can get mad over, like, my dog, but, like, we just, I can't trust my emotions. And so it's much easier for us to, to look and understand that faith, along with being assured and confident and convicted of things, is evidence. It is a substance of the things that we hope for. Um, faith is evidence. I, I recently have gotten into this little thing. You might have heard of it. It's called gardening. Yeah? It's wild. It's it's going to be in the Olympics one day. Um, gardening is awesome. And I've discovered this incredible passion for gardening, um, which is really weird. I didn't think it would happen. Uh, several weeks ago, my wife and I were like tired of just sitting on the couch and watching Netflix on a Saturday. And we're like, let's go do something. And so we went to uh, a certain department store, and which I don't go to anymore, but went to that certain department store, grabbed some lumber and wood and some, some stuff for plants, built these planter boxes and put them in our backyard, um, which is really awesome. Like, we're planting romaine and... What else am I planting? I can't remember. (laughs) What? Basil, that's right. I was telling Jonathan earlier, we're planting basil, uh, pickling cucumbers, so we make our own cucumbers. Uh, Wait, make our own pickles. Anyways, we're planting all these different things. (laughs) We're planting all these different things. And we bought some plants... We bought some plants that you like, they're kind of already sprouted and you put them in the ground and you water them and they grow. But we also bought seeds. Like, I was like, cool, challenge accepted. Let's see if I can make something grow. And the awesome thing is that there is a variety, like 
such a plethora of research on how to make plants grow. Like, you wouldn't believe the amount of like, scientific study and knowledge goes to and experience goes into making plants grow. So I follow the instructions. I take the seeds, I plant them, the certain like, depth under the soil that I'm supposed to plant them, I water them. Some people say you're supposed to cover them with like, plastic wrap to sort of create like, a greenhouse environment to like, make them grow. Now, when I plant these seeds, do I know that they're going to sprout? No. But do I have very good reason to believe that they would if I followed all the instructions? Right. My belief, my faith in the sprouting of these plants rests on evidence. But do I know? No. Like, I won't know until I see the full fruition of these plants sprouting, which, by the way, you'll be happy to know they are sprouting, and we'll be having pickling cucumbers in a couple months. Um, plants take forever to grow. That's the hardest thing about, plant, about gardening. Um, but my, my belief, my faith, rests on evidence. And what I like about the, the King James Version is that it causes us to redirect and say, okay, some people would say that our faith is blind faith. It rests on nothing. Our faith in Jesus, our faith in God, doesn't, doesn't mean anything. Um, my wife showed me this. I, I didn't read a ton of children's books growing up, but she, she showed me this story, which is called The Emperor's New Clothes. It's not The Emperor's New Groove. That's a little different. Um, but it's the Emperor's New Clothes. Have any of you guys heard of it? Okay, I haven't read it. I haven't read it. But I did read the Wikipedia article on it, so I know just a little bit about it. Um, if you haven't read it, or this is how the story goes. There is this emperor, and he hires these two tailors who later turn out to be con men. And he, um, he asks them to, build, to make him clothes for this upcoming like, parade that he's going through. And they convince him that these clothes that he's going to wear are, are really light. It's like an interesting fabric. Like, you know, it's hard to see. And you can only really see this fabric if you have, uh, like, you know, you have a certain position or if you have a certain level of intelligence. There's a, there's a variety of reasons why they convince him that what he's wearing is, like, faithful, like, is actual clothes. And uh, turns out, he's not wearing any clothes. He puts on these clothes, and one little kid's like, that dude's naked, right? That's the, sto- that's the story. He had faith in these con men for no good reason. No good reason. And that's how people sort of view Christianity. They would say, well, you don't, you don't have a good reason for your faith. You rest on nothing. You just have blind faith. You have no reason for which you stand on to accept these things. And, and I would say that that's, that's not true of our faith. Um, in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, you can turn there if you like, but I'm going to read it anyway, so if you just want to listen, that's okay. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 1 through 6 is what we're going to read. Uh, what happens is Paul is writing to these people, and he's trying to give them uh, like their security, point to them like what is their security, and he says this. He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in in vain. He's saying, I'm going to remind you of something, and you need to hold fast to this, because this will be your evidence, the thing that you rest on. He says, I delivered to you what is of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, and then to twelve, and then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me. So what's Paul doing here? He is reminding his audience of where their evidence is. He's saying, listen, everything that Christ did, fulfilled in scriptures. 
Things that he did in his time were written about him hundreds of years before he even showed up and he fulfilled those things. There's, your, there's part of your evidence. So when people say, hey, you don't have evidence for what you believe. I'm like, well, the person of Jesus actually fulfilled things that were written many years before he was even alive. And then he's saying, on top of that, over 500 people met with him after he died. Over 500 people, they're still alive. You can go ask them. That's what he's writing to this church. He's saying, people saw him. There is eyewitness testimony and account of Jesus being alive. Now, for many of you, this isn't, um, this isn't probably new stuff. If you've been around church for a while, this is stuff that you're like, yeah, no, I understand this. I, can, I believe that. I, have, I believe that's true. And I have a good security foundation for which I can rest on that evidence. And that's important. But the reason why this is important is because that, those are the things that we go back to um, as our evidence. So how many of you guys are from the Midwest? Midwest, or just anywhere, anywhere where it snows? Have you ever heard of something called the crocus flower? Yeah, some of you are nodding your heads. The crocus flower. It's this wild plant. Like, the crocus flower grows in really cold temperatures. Like, it thrives in, like, 15 to 25 degrees, which is unreal. Like, most plants, like, die at 50 degrees. Like, this plant thrives, and it's a flower. And what happens is if you live in an area where the crocus plant grows, and there's a warm day in the middle of winter, um, in the warm day in the middle of winter, and some of the snow melts, what happens is these plants will begin to sprout. And usually it's like the first sign of spring. Uh, but what also happens on top of that is that there might be another snow that happens after these plants sprout. So you have this beautiful picture of these crocus flowers, which look a little bit like tulips, and they're there, but they're covered with snow. And so for those of you, I, I didn't, people have told me this, this isn't from my personal experience, but sometimes when you live in places where it snows, it feels like winter's just going to go on forever. You're just like, oh my gosh, I could use some color right now. It's, it's just all white. Everything looks dead. Like, winter seems like it will last forever. But the cool thing is that the crocus flower becomes the evidence for which you can point to and say, I know that spring is coming. If it's warm enough for this to grow, it means spring is coming. And then summer. And then winter again, maybe later. But, it, but the crocus plant has bloomed, which means that winter isn't always going to be winter and spring is soon coming. Even if it snows again on it, you still know. You'd be like, remember, it bloomed. In the same way, Paul is encouraging his people and saying, hey, listen, there are things about your faith which you rely and stand on as evidence and they become the things that you go back to and point as your crocus flower and you say, okay, in the midst of whatever circumstance I have, living by faith is reminding myself that outside of my circumstance, outside of my feeling, I can point to the crocus flower, which for all of us is Jesus, but for some of us can be testimony of other people in this room. The signs of faith working in other people's life, the signs of God being faithful in your own life and say, I have seen God be faithful, I can move on with the future. The crocus flower. We all have a crocus flower. It should be Jesus. But it's also testimony and that kind of stuff. Okay. This is really awesome because people will say that you don't have good reason to believe what you believe. But we actually do. There's eyewitness account and good reason to hold fast, hold fast to the faith which we profess. Um, Dallas Willard has this thing where he says, uh, faith allows us to, be, to go beyond our knowledge on the basis of knowledge to go beyond our knowledge on the basis of knowledge. So in the midst of something I don't know, if I have good reason to trust the person who said it with that knowledge, then I can trust then what he's saying. And so that kind of makes sense when we read verse three. He says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. He's challenging our understanding to trust in things that we can sense with our five senses. And saying, 
okay, I, like you can say, okay, by faith, we can rest on the evidence of who God is, his character, on who Jesus is, all of the evidence that supports him, and take God at his word. It's not blind faith. It's not blind faith. We have good reason for this faith. We take God at his word for what he's saying. And it's not, it's, it's resting on evidence, and it's resting on the experience in which we have. We've seen God be a certain way, and we move and act accordingly. Um, one of my favorite definitions of faith, I wrote it down so that I wouldn't forget it, um, is that biblical faith begins on thinking and reasoning. And faith is a cognitive recognition of truth and also trust in God, which is grounded in experience, but then tied to action. Faith is tied to action. Uh, so he... In Hebrews, he, he begins to talk about uh, what faith is, and then he gives examples of people living out faith. Um, but he's sort of in the same line of thinking as someone called James. You guys um, ever heard of the book of James? Um, you can turn there. It's, the fall, it's just the book after Hebrews. James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verse 14. James talks about the relationship between faith and action, faith and works, faith and what we do. He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. He goes up even further. I read 18. I jumped ahead. My bad. Let's go to verse 14. Let's pretend that didn't happen. Verse 14. Here we go. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Essentially what he's saying is that you cannot divorce faith from the things that you do. Faith from the response of the evidence that you have seen. And that's the rest of Hebrews chapter 11, is look at different people who, in response to what they knew about God, acted. Response to what they knew about God, acted. Um, And that's really important because it's really, really, really easy to sit there and and mentally affirm what we're teaching. You can agree with what I'm saying, but then do nothing. And that's the type of faith that James says is, is dead. It's worth nothing. Um, a couple weeks ago, one of the pastors who was teaching uh, encouraged everyone to pull out their phones and to call someone or text someone that they felt like God was putting on their heart. Now, faith, if it's just up here and mental and, and sort of like a state I could whip myself into, would say, I believe that's a good thing to do. But then keep your phone in your pocket. That is not the type of faith which, which, with which the author of Hebrews is instructing his people to live by. Faith is not just a mental or sort of inward state in which I affirm and acknowledge something. It is that, but it is more. Faith is tied to the things that we do. Um, We're going to take a look at some of the characters that happen that we see in the rest of Hebrews chapter 11 um, to see what they do. It's important to note that Abel offered something. Enoch uh, walked with God. He did something. And Noah constructed something. All of these men in this story responded to God and what he was doing by doing something. Um, Verse 4 says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Um, The story of Cain and Abel is an interesting one. And to be quite honest with you, I don't think I would read it on its own and say that's a picture of faith. 
It's just not my, like, I've read that before and then read Hebrews, and I'm like, how did he, how did he get there? Like, how did he view that as a picture of faith? So that was something I've been wrestling with and still kind of wrestle with to this day, but some of the things that I've noticed after reading Hebrews 11 and then viewing back the story of Genesis is that all we know, the story, there's not much said about, like, their attitudes, their state of minds. All we know is that Cain and Abel knew who God was. Their parents were Adam and Eve who walked with God, literally, and so they would have known who God was. And both of them brought to God an offering. And we just know that God, God said that Abel's offering was better. Um, you can look at some of the text. The, the off, it says that Abel brought the firstlings of his flock. Like that could be des- described as like the best of his flock. And that Cain brought some of the vegetables. So I, I don't know exactly what's happening there. But it could be that Abel's sacrifice was just, just better. Like he brought exactly what God had asked him. It could be that God said, I want you both to bring me... Uh, a goat, and then Cain's like, I'm just going to bring you like a carrot. Um, It's not the same thing, but we don't know. What we do know is that what Abel offered God was, was the best that he had. What Abel brought to God in response to who he was, was the best. I taught a couple months ago on uh, Abraham and Melchizedek, and in this story, we see that Abraham, in response to Melchizedek, gives uh, a tenth of, of the spoils of which he had when he fought this battle. And the language kind of illustrates that it's, it's a tenth, a top, a top of the tenth. So like the best of the best he gave to, he gave to Melchizedek, who is this picture of Jesus. And so sort of the exhortation was, was, are you offering God the best that you have? In view of who God is, do you give him what's left over? Do you give him like, you know, the, the, the least, the stuff you don't want anymore? Or do you bring to God what he's, what he's due, what he's worth? Um, it's important to know, even uh, with this, uh, it can be tempting to say, okay, like, I just got to do things and then God will love me. But Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, it's by faith that we're justified. It's not by works. The things that we do don't save us. It's our faith in God. But you can't separate the things that we do from the faith. That's like the, that's the trouble that Martin Luther had with the book of James was that, like, he was wrestling with, like, okay, uh, I, I, is it faith or is it works? How do those work together? And like the Catholic Church was pushing works. And he was like, I don't even want to be near that. And so I don't even want to like rest on anything other than my faith in God. But the dynamic is one that you can't, you can't separate faith from the things that you do. Your faith is showed by the things that you do. And Abel's faith speaks to us now in the way that he, in view of who God was, brought him the best. Um, Enoch is a really interesting character. In Hebrews, it says, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And then it says, And without faith, it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The, the amount of sentences or lines in Scripture about Enoch are pretty small. It's like three sentences. It says, like, Enoch lived to be 65. He had a kid named Methuselah and other kids. And then he lived another 300 years and walked with God. And then he was not. And that's it. Like, it doesn't even say in Genesis, in our English translation, that, and then God didn't let him die and took him up. It just says, and then he was not. And, and uniquely, other people, it says they died and were buried in this place. So we, we understand, and the author of Hebrews is, is letting us know that he didn't die. God took him up. But the interesting part, the nuance of some of the, some of the language, at least with Hebrew thought, is how you posture yourself towards something is important. So if you've ever read Psalm 1, it says, blessed is the man who does not sit, stand, or like be seated in the presence of sinners and scoffers. Like your posture, like if you're sitting in the, in the presence of sinners, like you're agreeing with them. Like that's sort of like the idea. If you're just walking with them or standing with them, it's like you're participating in that. 
And so the nuance of, of saying Enoch walked with God was Enoch positioning himself to go with God, to be with him in a way that wasn't passive, it was intentional. And as we look at the text today and we're thinking, okay, what can I learn about what living by faith means? From Abel, we see part of it is bringing God the best of what we have, recognizing his greatness and his worth and bringing him what we can offer to him. Another part of it is recognizing that I don't just like sit and wait for God to walk by and ask him a question. Like, I need to walk with God and seek God. God is the person who I should be like going through every effort to place myself by and say, God, I'm with you. He has already claimed us. He's already said that he loved us. It's on us to say, God, okay, in faith, in recognition of who you are, I will walk with you. Uh, The last story um, is the one of Noah. And I would bet that even if this is your first time in church, you have heard the story of Noah. It's a pretty popular story. Um, Verse seven says, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. The story of Noah for me is one that's kind of like, it's like, when Noah was alive, there wasn't rain. And God says, hey, Noah, this thing you've never seen, this thing you've never seen is going to happen. And then I want you to do this. He had never seen rain. He probably hadn't even seen a boat as big as the ark. Like he might have seen a boat and that's a maybe. But God said, hey, you've never seen a ship this big and you're going to build it and you've never seen rain and it's going to flood the earth and I want you to do this. And Noah, in understanding of who God was, moved. Moved. Think about that. In understanding of who God was, he moved and acted. There is a sense in which our faith is tied to the things that we do. It's not proven by the things that we do. It's not like... Your works and the things that you do don't save you. It's your belief and acknowledgement of who God is and your response to him is what shows our faith. Um, but then there becomes the question like, okay, life is hard. Life is hard. Like, what about the moments when I lack faith and I'm not doing something? What, what do I do in those times? Well, the encouragement of Hebrews is to, to understand that our faith rests on evidence and to look for the things that is the crocus flower in our life. Say, okay, where have I seen God be faithful in the past to get through whatever I'm coming there? If you take that analogy a little bit further, um, the crocus flower, if it'll snow again, like some people get a little bit more snow than others, or different seasons will have certain flowers having more snow than others. There are difficult seasons with which we find ourselves um, experiencing doubt. One of the things I found was really interesting is that um, almost the opposite of faith, mostly, is doubt. The opposite of conviction and assurance of who God is is doubt. And uh, the encouragement of the readers, of the author of Hebrews, is to take God at his word, to believe what he says. What's the first thing the enemy says to Adam and Eve? Did God really say? Did God really say that? Causes us to question the things that we know to be true. And so our response is to say, okay, I know this to be true. And I will not let anything get in the way of this. And then we come along other people and we say, hey, here's how I've seen God be true. This is what you need to know about God being true. It's communally driven. Um, But there is a sense in which, um, regardless of where you find yourself, you will experience pain and moments and seasons of doubt. And I don't necessarily have an answer for you for what to do in those moments, but only that the call of the author of Hebrews is to tell you to look back at the moments in which God has been faithful and act and respond accordingly. But I know that's hard. And I know that's hard out of personal experience. And I don't say this to share, I don't share this with you. Like, the, the game of comparing pain in, in my mind is something that's, 
I mean, nobody wins that game. And, and if you win, like, you don't want to be the person that wins that game. But, like, the, like, people have pain. And so the question is, in moments and seasons in which I'm, ca- like, I'm caused to doubt or I forget what God is doing, what do I do? The last eight, ten months has probably been the worst of my life. I'm 25, I'm young, and there's probably more worse things will happen to me, but it's been the worst. I lost my cousin in August, family drama, my nephew has epilepsy, like, diagnosed, and, like, all this stuff is happening, and I've experienced the deepest depression that I've ever been in. And in the, in the midst of this, this all came to crash, like, on Christmas, when it's like, okay, well, what are you going to do with your family on this time? And that was tough. Just laying in bed, like, overthinking and overthinking and overthinking and then being numb, and then overthinking and overthinking and then being numb, and not knowing what to do, and feeling like I couldn't move. And what has helped me, not that I am out of this, what has helped me is to be reminded of the seasons in which God has been faithful. What has helped me is others, others saying, I know, here's where God has been faithful. I don't know where this meets you. I don't know where this, this morning, this, this call to be faithful and move and step out in faith, I don't know where it meets you. But if there's any encouragement, it's to gather around other people and hear how God has been faithful in their lives and then move and act accordingly. For us as a community, can you imagine if all of us stepped out in faith and acted towards our city? If our faith actually breathed out actions from our lives and affected other people? Jesus says over and over again, people are gonna know you by your love. And James says... If you just tell someone, like, oh, I love you, like, what good is that? If you go out and show them love, act on your faith, imagine what God would do with that. So whether you're in a moment of pain or looking for what to do with this faith that you have in God, know that we are called to move and act on this deep conviction that we have that God is good, God is faithful. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you... You have made yourself known to us and you have given us good reason to trust in you. I ask God for those who might be in a season of doubt in which they are questioning those reasons that you would affirm that those are good things to do. Would you pull them and show them why you are worthy? The reasons that we have to put our hope and trust in you. For those of us in this room, God, that are feeling a call to do something, but we don't know what, would you reveal to them people or places or things in which they can step out and act in faith as a sign of their reverence and understanding of you? And for those, God, who are in this room who have no faith, who can't see your goodness, who can't see why you would allow things to happen, would you bring others along with them? Would you remind moments in which you have been unbelievably faithful to them? and give them hope. Amen.